Hello and welcome back to the Shadow Work Library. My name is Jessica DePazzi and today I have another one of those behind the scenes interviews. If you didn't listen to the last one with John Verveke, PhD, that's cool, but I'll just explain this over again. <laughs> uh, we are in the process of post-production for a documentary called Dark Night of Our Soul that we've been working on since 2019. Now, May 2023, we're launching a Kickstarter to help us finish the film, but we do have a fantastic 30-minute version of that film that's ready to watch right now, so if you'd like to go check that out, you can visit posttraumaticgrowth.film, and I'll also link to that in the show notes here as well. The reason why I'm saying that is because throughout that process, we interviewed some just freaking geniuses, just amazing, amazing people. And when you're in the process of putting together a 90 minute short or 90 minute feature, we had to what the industry calls uh, slay some darlings, more or less, which means basically each person that was interviewed gets minutes. So I have all this amazing footage that we were just doing nothing with. And I was like, oh yeah, I have a podcast. I'm going to put it on that. I'm a genius too. <laughs> so that's what you're going to be listening to. If you're interested in watching the YouTube version, that's on a whole different level. It was professionally shot for a documentary. So it has this cinema quality to it. It's really gorgeous. So I'm going to link to that as well in the show notes. So if you have the space, definitely check out the YouTube version. Now in this episode with Anderson Todd, who is a colleague of John Verbeke's at the University of Toronto, he is the assistant director of consciousness studies, uh, which if that sounds cool, it is. He has been on the show actually before talking about altered states. And so this interview was conducted before I had him on in Shadow Work Library. And we spanned a whole range of topics. We again talk about altered states in a different kind of context, but I would say the majority of this episode is really about consciousness. Now, expanding one's consciousness from a scientific standpoint or from a scholar's standpoint is something that I was, you know, I hadn't had a lot of conversations around that. So it was incredibly eye-opening for me. I think it will be for you too. All right. Enjoy the show with Anderson Todd. Yeah, but if you saw me in this absolutely every single day for a long time, I, like I said, I took it as a I took it as a note of endearment, although I'm not sure if it's actually meant that way. But. It's always good to take it that way. Yeah. Uh, Dark Night of the Soul, Anderson Todd interview, take one. All right, here we are. Okay, so how about you start with your name and what is your life's work? What do you do? Sure. Um, so I'm Anderson Todd. My life's work. That's a, a powerful question. Uh, I sort of wear a, f a few hats. So one is I'm an assistant professor uh, in the teaching stream at the University of Toronto. Uh, and I have taught in the cognitive science department. Uh, I currently teach in the Buddhist psychology and mental health program and also um, interdisciplinary courses in, in Jungian theory. So in the cognitive science department, I taught for the most part on consciousness, on the theory of consciousness and the cognitive science of consciousness. And in a sense, my work on the other side has to do with uh, the unconscious, the dynamics of the unconscious. So broadly speaking, I'm very concerned with sort of the mind um, and specifically concerned with 
um, the intentional self-transformation of the mind, so in, intentional self-transcendence and what the tools and techniques and mechanisms and cultural systems are that we have to sort of engage in those practices of intentional self-transformation. Uh, so that's kind of one hat. Uh, the other hat is that I'm a, a practicing registered psychotherapist, um, and in that domain I'm a, I'm a neo-Jungian. So like many therapists, I'm an eclectic uh, or an integrationist. Um, but uh, this means, of course, that what I'm really doing is combining together sort of cognitive science and the cutting edge of what we know about the mind, what we know about cognition and emotion, together with a sensibility that really comes from kind of Carl Jung and depth psychology, this idea that we have a, um, a resonant shared reservoir of uh, archetypes, right, of these aspects of our cognition and our development that are really um, across human beings. And so in both of those areas, and, and in my research elsewise, I'm very concerned with these questions of how we self-transform, what it means to self-transform, right? Uh, and to me, therapy, religion, um, philosophy, uh, all of these things are systems that are attempting to find these ways for us to overcome our suffering and to find human flourishing. So I'm very interested in these systems of self-transformation. Um, as such, that leads me down some pretty um, uh, unusual side roads. So I'm very interested in altered states and lucid dreaming and non-invasive brain stimulation and uh, trance and meditation and um, ritual um, and psychedelics and so on and so forth. So I have a pretty wide range of interests and much of that is sort of things that are considered you know, weird at the outset. People look at them and they're like, what, what is that? But really it's about looking at the you know, sum of human knowledge and human experience and assuming that, you know, people who came before us weren't stupid, that they were making, you know, deep, rational and often wise inquiries into the human condition and how we transform ourselves and what is it that is there to learn from and what is it that we have there that we can use science in a sense to better understand and possibly improve. So, yeah, that's, that's my life's work, I suppose. Awesome. Why do you think it is that there is this misconception that people before us were less intelligent or like we're this elevated being now? Well, some of that, some, some of the reason I believe that we tend to kind of look down our nose at the peoples to come before us has to do with our particular cultural notion around the myth of progress. So there's no question that we have made some gains as a civilization that the cultures that preceded us didn't do. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we did put human beings on the moon, right? That's an impressive feat. If you really think about it, there were human beings on the moon. And of course, we left garbage there because uh, that's what we do. But, you know, we've made these impressive gains, right? There's been improvements in sanitation. There's been improvements in knowledge. We have a much better sense of cosmology, right, of the nature of matter. Um, the nature of the brain, the nature of the body, antibiotics. We've made these real gains, right, scientifically. However, we tend to then look at the people that came before us and we have a kind of snobbish disregard for their sets of concerns. And the fact is that up to this point, our technological progress in civilization has done very little to address questions of wisdom real questions of human flourishing, right? Higher kinds of cognition. Now that is starting to change. Um, cognitive science in particular uh, is, 
deeply concerned with some of these higher forms of cognition. And you're beginning to see the development of a science of wisdom, which is a remarkable, right? A remarkable and very modern um, kind of set of events. But we have a tendency, like most cultures, to see things myopically from our own perspective. Like we, we know what we know. And so when we look at other people, we see a bunch of, you know, dirty idiots. Uh, that is basically how we, how we tend to look at the past. And this is quite unfair, right? Uh, human beings have been considering some of these existential problems for as long as there have been human beings. And the solutions that came before us were not biologically distinct, really, right? Genetically speaking, from the people that have been around for a million years. So for a million years or more, people have been considering these problems in an intelligent and thoughtful way. Um, so the question is just to be able to approach those uh, solutions, those systems that people have used to approach those same issues, right, in, in an equally kind of thoughtful way and to be charitable, right, to assume that maybe there's something to learn uh, rather than to assume that, you know, we're, we're on top of it and there's nothing, nothing to learn there, to, to have a kind of intellectual humility. Yeah. Great. I'd like to back up a little bit mm -hmm. and learn a little bit more about you and how you got interested in, in self-transcending. Right. Um, so that's an interesting question too. <laughs> uh, so uh, I sometimes say that I've had a career that is less checkered maybe than made of polka dots. Uh, I've had a very unusual path in a certain sense through life. It's been unconventional. Um, so I was, uh, um, I guess, a, a fairly kind of precocious um, child, I read uh, enormous amounts, um, and I had a very sort of creative childhood. Um, and I was lucky enough early on to have some educational experiences that were quite positive, um, some sort of gifted experiences and enrichment experiences that were quite positive. Uh, then I got into high school, and that was an absolute train wreck. Um, it was institutionalized absurdity. Uh, and pretty rapidly, by the time I was about 12, um, I began to experience quite serious depression. But also, I had my first inklings that um, the adults didn't know what they were doing either. Um, and that the narrative that everybody should follow along because they were in control was sort of on its face uh, absurd, uh, right? It was very clear that the adults were not especially more in control of their emotions or their situation. Um, and the world did not seem as though it worked especially well. Um, so that was an early recognition for me and led to a period of pretty stark rebellion. Uh, and I ended up dropping out from high school. Um, not because I was disinterested in learning, but rather because I felt that the educational system was not really achieving those tasks effectively. So skipping class and going to the library seemed like a much better way to sort of spend my time. Um, thereafter, I went through a whole series of kind of career things. So I. Um, it's hard to get into this in detail. I invented a machine when I was 17, which was designed to use magnetic fields to induce altered states of consciousness. And soon thereafter, I connected with a researcher at Laurentian University in uh, up north in Ontario at Laurentian, who was doing similar kinds of work. And he was quite encouraging when I was talking about my results. And so I decided to monetize that because I wanted to move to India. So I started a company and I did that till I was 21. Uh, and I had a bit of a falling out with that. Uh, and then I spent quite a bit of time uh, wandering the earth, solving mysteries. Uh, so uh, I didn't, I had no fixed address. 
I think is the, the polite way to say that. So I traveled to England and I traveled through Canada um, and I spent quite a bit of my time sort of writing and talking to people and engaging in, you know, uh, inconsistent spiritual discipline, let's say, but I was very interested in these problems. Um, in my late 20s, I set a bunch of time aside to um, work as a novelist. And so I was living in a house up north uh, on the, the peninsula near Georgian Bay uh, for two and a half years. And during that period, I did get an enormous amount of writing and creative work done, but I also began to really feel a gnawing sense that what I was doing was not effectively connecting to the world. And at the tail end of that, I had a, a fairly powerful mystical experience that was precipitated by a psychedelic experience that I had. It was um, inadvertent and frankly uh, reckless, uh, which is something that I often tell people that it's, it's no way to conduct psychedelic experimentation or, um, or sort of self-transformation. It was reckless. But I was swept into a frankly powerful traumatic experience, um, which, um, which I think of as being something of an ego death. Um, and I, I'm concerned about co-opting that term and the sort of scale of it, but I had a, an apocalyptic experience, which I have described in some places, you know, accurately as being the most terrifying five minutes of my life, uh, in which, you know, I believed that the universe had been destroyed and I had been destroyed and this had been done to teach me a lesson about my, my hubris. When I came up the far side of that, I reassessed things pretty radically. And one of the conclusions that I had in processing it was that it was time to leave the cave and rejoin civilization. And so I made the decision that if there was sort of a career path for me, that it was going to be in sort of helping other people deal with their crazy. Because I had taken it as a given that everybody is crazy. And I still hold that. I've never met anybody who isn't crazy. I'm quite certainly crazy. Um, if you get to know somebody, it's often about getting to know they're crazy. And having a close relationship with somebody is about learning to find the compatibility with their crazy, right? And, and to help, you know, support them as they work through it. But I decided I was going to sort of rejoin the world. And so I thought that the short route to that was to do school for therapy. So when I became reinvolved with, with school, with the university, I was, you know, many years away from the education system and frankly had a, a quite dim view of it. But I actually found that the university, I went to the University of Toronto, and I found that the university was far more supportive and tolerant of my idiosyncrasies, my eccentricities, than I had expected. And I had the very good fortune to have a number of instructors who um, were remarkable people, um, not, not least John Verbeke, who I know you, you've also interviewed. Um, you know, in encountering John's work, I found a kind of kindred spirit. Uh, somebody who was likewise considering some of these very, very deep questions around what at the time I called, um, I called uh, meaning thirst and what he calls the meaning crisis. So I, I had many of these ideas and developments of my own, my own sort of idiosyncratic reading and writing and trying to conceptualize these things. In encountering John, I found somebody else who was doing this sort of deep, structural, careful thinking that was backed by a, a, you know, a strong, compassionate response. And fairly rapidly, I changed my, my major. I switched into cognitive science so that I could work more closely. And pretty quickly, John and I became, um, you know, collaborators and then friends. And so we've done a, a fair bit of co-authoring together. Um, and, you know, we've spent 
enormous number of sort of hours, both you know spending time together as friends, but also in discussing these issues. We're both sort of very fired up by them, uh, and so it it happened to be that through that I. Um, you know, ended up having a much deeper involvement with the university than I ever anticipated. I certainly didn't set out to be a professor. That um, is something that, I, in, a, in a sense, I've sort of fallen backwards into, um, which is a strange experience. But also, you know, in the course of that, I had proposed to John that if we were going to consider these things in a theoretical fashion, it might also be fruitful for us to consider them in a, in a practical, empirical, experimental fashion. Uh, and so, you know, once I proposed this to him, he and I co-founded the, the um, U of T Consciousness and Wisdom Studies Laboratory, which was, you know, sort of set up very specifically um, to look at the kinds of issues that we were concerned with. Altered states of consciousness, higher states of consciousness, higher states of cognition, and ultimately speaking, wisdom. And much of the work that we've done together is, is specifically related to these things. We have different approaches in some ways. Um, and certainly we have you know, a, a number of sort of theoretical debates that are, that are ongoing around this, but we have very similar aims, very similar concerns. Um, so yeah, in a sense, it sort of has grown out of that and as various you know, avenues have opened up um, through the university, through my therapeutic work um, and through my connections with people uh, and increasingly uh, through sort of the online space, um, it's very clear there's such a deep hunger um, for this material, and so my own transformations, and the one that I had, the sort of apocalyptic mystical experience, was not the last, wasn't the first, and it wasn't the last either. I have kind of come to an appreciation that many people are looking for information on how to navigate these states themselves, and indeed they are sort of see seeking it, right? The psychedelic renaissance is, is a very clear indication of that. You know, when I was interested in that material, initially speaking, it was quite verboten. You know, it was like, no, 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 one doesn't talk about these things. But things are changing because I think there, there is that change. And so it was a natural interest on my part, but it's sort of plugged into the current of things, I suppose. Wow, that was way more than I thought you were gonna say. Oh, sorry. Not in terms of length, but I built a machine. <laughs> I'm oh. a novelist, all that. Really good, that's awesome. Can write a book one day about your I'm sorry. Um, so I would love to get into now altered states and if you could also define trauma in whatever way possible. And let me add a little back, background to this. So uh, for people watching this, mm -hmm. we're hoping that they can take a reframe on the challenging moments in their life that have happened, that mm -hmm. are currently happening, and then the ones that are going to happen in the future. I don't necessarily want to, um, or I, I want to be careful around having people identify now as being traumatized. Sure. So, but you're familiar with that. Um, I would love to get into how you define trauma or adversity, mm -hmm. and, adversity and then also how altered states can be a really great um, partner in exploring meaning in those events. In those events, sure. So the, the way that I think about trauma and my sort of theoretical work around trauma is that the crux of trauma has to do with trust and the violation of trust. So if we think about the way that we process the world as individuals, we maintain these kinds of models in our head of other people, of events in the world, right? Uh, that, that allow us to form expectations, right? They're sort of predictive. But they're not just 
you know, sort of dry lists of predictions. They are, essentially speaking, versions of those people in our head. So you can think about this when you, you, you have a dream, right? And somebody you know appears and they act just like themselves, even though what they're saying is absurd. It's because you're interacting with this aspect of them. And we can see this you know, really clearly, for instance, in, in couples, right? So couples, the longer a couple is together, the more they can sort of anticipate each other's responses, right? They, they internalize each other in this important way. Children internalize their parents. We internalize our friends when we say, pick up a piece of slang or something. Um, and find ourselves saying that thing that they always say. So we're always internalizing, we're always building these models. The essence of trauma relative to adversity um, in, in my theory is that you can have adversity, something bad can happen to you and that is simply bad. The problem comes when the thing that happens to you violates your expectation in such a way as it begins to erode your trust. So, you know, if your parent says that they're going to come to your softball game and they don't show up, you're hurt. But if they say it over and over again, yes, yes, I'm going to come, and they don't, eventually you begin to erode your trust in them. And it starts to become traumatic because you begin to no longer trust, right, what they say. If enough people engage in this, you begin to distrust people broadly. But if you have enough violations of trust, or if those trust violations happen sort of early enough and severely enough, then what happens is you begin to distrust your own modeling capacities, right? You begin to ask yourself, right, at some level, like, is it, is it me? Am I misreading things? And when that happens, the mind begins to, um, to dissociate, right? The internal components of the mind, which sort of require trust between them, right? These different areas of the mind, which have, have to have a certain kind of transparency in order to function, begin to drift. And this is what we see when people, say, have trauma at a very young age, right? We see them having dissociative symptoms. So we see derealization and depersonalization and deep distrust of others. So it's this functional question around trust that is very much the, the key. Something bad can happen to you, but if it violates your sense of trusting, trusting others, of trusting the world, of trusting yourself, then you're into very deep territory. And that very often is where Right? Things begin to fracture and where in turn you start to see you know, the various kinds of isolated outbursts, right? um, where the subsystems of your own mind and brain in a sense are at odds with each other. Right? They're at cross purposes and so you'll feel intrusive thoughts and right, emotional systems that you don't seem to have any conscious connection to. Or indeed you'll begin to display behaviors that feel like they're out of your control. And the reason is that in a literal sense that that fracturing, that dissociation that sets in is taking things out of your control, right? Now, dissociation is an inherently human um, aspect of consciousness. We all dissociate. If you read a book, you dissociate. If you watch television, you dissociate. If you daydream, you dissociate. It's not that dissociation is inherently bad. It's part of the functioning of the system. However, if that dissociation reaches a certain kind of level, it becomes non-functional, right? And in general, with psychological issues, you know, it's a problem if it's a problem, right? And things can tip over into becoming problems, right? Into interfering with your life or your goals in various ways and making things more confusing than they need to be. So where altered states play into this? It depends, I mean, altered states are uh, a pr pretty big field. There's a lot of things there. But, you know, we're used to thinking of our regular state of consciousness, many of us, as being sort of the only game in town, right? It's like regular consciousness, but that isn't strictly speaking true. Um, we all engage in dream. Sometimes we all 
drift out, right? We daydream, which is a kind of altered state. Um, we experience strong emotions, which are kind of altered state of their own. Anybody who um, has thought that they were sending a very clear and measured text while they were angry, only to read it later and find out that their words were incredibly harsh, right? They were in an altered state, which is sort of marked by this question, like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? However, all of those still fall within a fairly narrow range. And there is a much wider set of states which is available to us as human beings that cultures across the globe and through history have learned to tap into in various ways, right? Through trance, through dance, through meditation, through ritual, through psychedelics, through fasting, etc. Being able to move in those altered states changes the way that the functional networks of our brain interact, right? And so in that sense, Every altered state is different. There are specific tools that can do specific things. But being able to alter the overall functionality both gives us access to material that would otherwise be unconscious to us, but it also connects material together in a way that hasn't been connected. And because the issue is this dissociated fractitiousness, right? this, this fracture, this dissociation, um, altered states often can serve to connect together things that otherwise haven't been connected together. It can sort of open up dialogue between parts of the self that have otherwise been sort of isolated and, uh, and at odds with each other. So it's a sophisticated field, and the science around it is really, frankly, in its infancy. But it seems very clear to me that this use of altered states um, can be used not only to address kind of trauma, but also to induce the kinds of states which make us resilient to these kinds of dissociative fractures before they happen. And you see that with many cultures using, for instance, initiation rites, which can be powerful and un unpleasant, uncomfortable, um, you know, states of consciousness and states of being. And yet they're done in a sense to prepare us, right, to transform us, to make us more resilient and so on and so forth in a controlled and ritual fashion. Uh, we don't do that in the West. We've lost our initiation rituals. Um, at best, we have like getting drunk, getting our driver's license, and losing our virginity. Uh, we have you know, throwing the hat at graduation. But we don't really have a ritual framework in the same way for allowing people to tap into these mechanisms to aid their own development and indeed to give themselves this kind of resilience. Um, so that, I would say that's kind of how it plugs together. Perfect. Um, going back to the definition of how trauma comes about, mm -hmm. do you find that that's helpful for your clients or people in general to to know why they their nervous system after a certain thing is so on the fritz? It can. I mean, mm, you know, when I say that this is part of my theoretical work, I don't want to say that it is sort of perfectly established. There are, I'm sure, many people who would disagree with me, and it's it's work in progress, but. You know, it can be useful to people to have some sense of things, even though we don't have a complete picture, because often things are easier to bear if you can anticipate them. If you know that it's coming, often it's, it's not quite so bad. So if you can sort of outline what things um, are happening to people, if you can outline the process for them, you can say, hey, look, you should be expecting this. So I spoke with a client the other day who's going through um, heartbreak. Um, and in, in the sort of for the first time in a really serious way. Um, I'm no stranger to heartbreak. And so being able to say to him like, okay, you should expect this and you should expect this and like this is going to happen and this is going to happen and like expect those things, right? Gives him a little bit of preparatory time. And when it happens, it's less confusing. 
less hard to categorize. It's like, okay, this is happening, and right, I know that I can sort of bear through this. Having a sense of what's going on otherwise, I think it's important with clients especially to um, try to give them both. So there is both this functional perspective of like, well, what are we talking about here? Like what's going on in your brain? And that can help because it can distance you somewhat. It stops being that you're just boiling in it and instead it's like, okay, this is a process. And like any process, it can be understood and it can be examined and we can approach it with curiosity. But also it's important that you match that with a kind of phenomenological approach, right? Which is to say that what it is like to have that experience. And I think that's really where, um, as a clinician, it's important to have your own experiences of this kind. You really have to have gone through some hell in order to be able to connect with people who are going to be dealing with them themselves. Because if you haven't, there is a, a very deep sense in which you don't know what you're talking about, right? If you haven't experienced tragedy, if you haven't experienced some measure of trauma, if you haven't felt like you're going to pieces, if you haven't really dealt with and processed those things, then the advice that you're gonna give is gonna be sort of formal and hollow. And you're not able to give somebody the connected sense of like, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Not exactly, I mean, we don't have precisely the same experience, right, everybody is different. But there is this common ground that we have because we are both human beings and you can experience both that empathy. They can feel that you know, and they can. They can feel that you know. But also, you can give them those signposts. You can say, look, this is what's happening at this level. But also, here is what you're going to experience, right? And this is how it's going to occur. It's gonna come in waves. You should expect this, you should expect that. That makes a huge difference for people, I find. It's still hard, obviously, uh, but as compared to trying to navigate these things with no signposts and no guide at all, um, people typically just think they're going crazy or falling apart or that they can't handle it. And so it can be helpful to guide people and let them know you can handle this. You're actually stronger than you think. On a mission to help people have more autonomy over their own mental health and their own exploration of themselves, um, you had mentioned that as a therapist or a counselor, someone who helps other people, it's really helpful to go through mm -hmm. tough times so you can walk the talk. Mm -hmm. um, and also, as I would imagine, a form of your own initiation to mm -hmm. really have that like almost shamanic experience of, you know, not just going to school for it, but like living it. Yeah. Uh, is there any benefit to intentionally putting yourself in challenging situations as your average human? Yes, but you have to be careful. You know, the, when you are encountering something, when you're encountering adversity, it's not generally a good idea to simply run from it. And that kind of avoidance strategy is often our default. Something is unpleasant, move away. And it's certainly our cultural default. We avoid unpleasantness at all costs um, in our culture, certainly in North America. Um, it can definitely be useful to move towards something because it is a very different experience emotionally and phenomenal phenomenologically and existentially to make an approach towards the cave than it is to have the tiger to pounce, pouncing on you, uh, you know, with surprise out of the rain. It's a, it's a different experience. It's one where you are intentionally approaching and your intention and your desire to do that means that you are not helpless. Even though you might be afraid, it's a decision you're making, right? That's going to give you a, a note of resilience that isn't going to be present if you feel helpless and powerless as something mauls you, overcomes you. Um, 
how far you want to extend that particular approach to adversity is really dependent on the individual. I don't believe that everybody is necessarily cut out to have the kinds of experiences that um, may, may sort of radically reform. So psychedelics are a good example of this. Psychedelics are not everyone's cup of tea, and they're not well suited to every circumstance. They are not um, a sort of universal um, panacea that we can pour on every problem to make it go away. There are people who do not necessarily benefit from that kind of confrontation, right? At least not initially. Likewise, meditation, as much as it has been sort of proposed, and meditation seems very calm, but there is a deep confrontation present in meditation, right? Confrontation with, you know, with the uncontrolled forces of your own mind and with silence and sitting and, right? Um, Meditation, likewise, is a kind of confrontation that people can find quite difficult. Not everybody is in a place to benefit from that. Sometimes what they need is other things to reinforce their stability first. However, certainly it is the case that encountering adversity builds strength, right? If it is done correctly and in a controlled fashion. And there are domains that we see this very readily, you know, uh, exercise. We all know that if you want to build muscle and strength, you have to traumatize your muscles effectively. You are, you're tearing muscle fibers apart and it hurts. But there's pain and then there's pain. There is the pain of a good workout where you come out of it and yeah, maybe partway through you were saying, oh, oh my God, I, like I can't handle this, right? But you come out the far side, you're sore and yet you know that this is building strength. And then there is the acute pain that's like, I need to stop. And so, you know, being able to assess that line and sometimes having assistance from people to assess that line about how far is too far. We need to move outside of our comfort zone, but we shouldn't move into a place that's doing more damage than good. And that's a very difficult problem. So it, it is certainly useful. Um, and for those who can tolerate a really high degree of ambiguity and of uncertainty, um, I think that it's not just useful to make that approach, um, it's kind of an essential part of our human heritage, right? Cultures have always had people who took that role on themselves. And, and I hesitate to use the word shamanic because I don't want to co-opt cultural traditions in a sense that aren't my own, but making that kind of radical approach um, is something that we see in, in cultures all over the place and in the, the deep religious traditions and wisdom traditions, right? Being able to go into the cave, being able to confront um, you know, chaos in a sense, um, and also being able to confront the, the meaning in some sense or the lack of meaning that we find when we look at ourselves as human beings. Somebody has to do it. That's the point. And not everybody is in a position to do it. But for people who are in a position to do it, um, you know, it's an important sort of social role, an important social function to be able to do this and then to be able to bring whatever useful information you can back from that complex process to help other people. So, yeah. Brilliant. For the people that don't, aren't very comfortable and don't feel safe in ambiguity, um, that may not be the best, best suited for psychedelics, mm. uh, what would you say is a more gentle, or yeah, a gentler approach to embracing a different type of consciousness? So. Reminder, sorry, to try to feed the question back Oh, yes, respond to the question. So for people who, um, you know, are not as comfortable with, with ambiguity, who find that sort of stressful and anxious, the interesting thing, of course, about adversity is that we never lack for it. 
It's present at sort of every level in the world. There are no shortage of opportunities just in daily life in order to confront a certain amount of ambiguity and a certain amount of um, discomfort and to be able to make that approach uh, to build resilience. Um, you know, there are all sorts of things people can do. It depends how, you know, sort of uh, how tense they are around those questions. So. Um, I've done work, for instance, with uh, people on the autism spectrum, uh, young adults on the autism spectrum, and there is often a great deal of discomfort around uh, sort of ambiguity, right, and, and breaks from um, the predictable, right, and breaks from the reliable. Breaking out of those patterns is, is often extremely, extremely stressful and anxiety-provoking. And yet it's possible to produce circumstances for people even, even in that condition, right, where they're able to encounter the ambiguous with joy. Because there are cases where we enjoy ambiguity. Humor involves ambiguity. And we, it's the ambiguity of it that is the thing that we enjoy. Um, mysteries, when we really enjoy them, right, which we often do, involve this kind of ambiguity. Paradoxes. And some people really enjoy paradoxes. Some people find paradoxes extremely stressful and, and off-putting. But if you can learn to sort of, as I say, become a connoisseur, right? Take whatever level of tolerance you're at and just elevate a little bit and become a connoisseur of that kind of ambiguity, you can sort of gradually increase your sense of how to tolerate it, but also, right, expand the horizon of the sort of, right, intercategorical things that you're going to encounter. And the world ultimately is, is an ambiguous and complex place. So you're expanding your encounter with the world. Um, the altered states end of things, that's not, again, everybody's cup of tea. Um, but a lot of people find that, you know, they begin by making a sort of a gentle foray uh, in, into this sort of thing. Uh, and then eventually they get to a place where they're like, you know what, I'm going to try this. Um, and Doing so in a controlled setting is very important. Like safety matters. These altered states, whether they be you know psychedelic or ritual, right? They're not toys. They're tools, and they need to be treated respectfully. And we have ideas about how to do that, how to contain an experience, and how to guide an experience so that it is safe and open and available to people in that way. So I think a lot more people are showing curiosity in that respect and able to expand, but really it's about trying to find that moderate line with, with any exploration of consciousness, like any exploration of the world, of going to the place where you are comfortable and then taking two steps past that and testing where you're at. Can I deal with this, right? Okay, I can. And you reflect back on your experience. Obviously, having a social framework in place that sort of facilitates that makes a huge difference, right? So if other people you know are involved in it, that's going to make a big difference. But yeah, it's about push, pushing our own boundaries, as it is with sort of any form of achievement, right? Or any form of exploration. Let's talk about people on the other side of that scale. Mm -hmm. I don't know how we would define them, maybe on the schizo scale, but people that could benefit from being more grounded and have a reality that's perhaps mm -hmm. too fragmented. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything in your work, and maybe if we can also touch on altered states mm -hmm. for them, or maybe they do live in more of an altered state, um, how they may benefit from, from your kind of work? Sure. So when it comes to the problem of meaning, many people operate on the assumption that we just need more, 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 more. They think about it in the same way as they think about, I don't know, everything else in our culture, sex, money, more, more, more. Uh, we do not always need more meaning. 
there are people who are suffering from an excess of mating. So people, you know, uh, people who are suffering from schizophrenia or schizotypal, anybody who's ever had a kind of extreme state that verges into what would normally be categorized as um, psychotic is experiencing a powerful excess of meaning, right? Um, and, you know, if, if you've ever had a strong psychedelic experience, then you can pretty easily recognize that the next day, you don't want your bowl of oatmeal to mean anything. You just want it to sit there and be oatmeal, like you're kind of exhausted from being awash in excess meaning. So it is possible to go too far off into this space and to need to put your feet on the ground, to dial things back. So it's not uncommon for me to encounter clients or students who are already sort of lofted into these symbolic spaces and want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into them and to instead say, well, let's ground things a little bit, right? It's about connecting together those higher reaches and these grounded reaches, right? Concrete, measurable, grounded, etc. The same thing, of course, is obviously the case when people are suffering dissociation, right? You want to ground them. You want to be able to reconnect them to their body and to physical reality and to their relationships with other people, right? Not to sort of loft into abstract space and connection and, you know, excess meaning. And in general, I mean, you can think about this because we do not always want things to be more meaningful in, in very simple terms. So for instance, if you go to your Thanksgiving dinner, and your grandmother all of a sudden starts shrieking obscenities at you at the table, it's a relief for you to hear that the cause of that is strictly biological, right? It's not a relief in the sense that, oh, like, oh no, something is wrong with grandma, but it's better that it be that than that she hates you, right? That it's sort of a, a meaningful thing. Likewise, if I have a client that comes to me for depression, the first thing that I do is I say, go get your thyroid checked. Because if you have a deficit in thyroid function, that can result in depressive symptoms. And if people do get their thyroid checked and they find that it's just their thyroid and they need to take a pill, that's a relief. It just means, oh, I'm a machine. It is a less meaningful state, right? Um, it's not about this sort of swirling mass of my concerns and my childhood and how I'm interacting with the world. It's just, it's just I'm, there's a malfunction, right? It's less meaningful. So there are cases where we actually want things to be sort of less meaningful. And for some people, you know, their, their base state may, may fluctuate. Sometimes things feel meaningless and nihilistic and empty, right? And sometimes there is a kind of manic surfeit of, of this like meaning and significance and power. And that can be a very difficult space to navigate. But in general, for virtually everybody, the recommendation that I try to make is that the real skill involved in trying to navigate any of these spaces is about coming to a kind of conscious connection with your states of consciousness and your states of construal and your straight states of identity. Because when you encounter these things consciously and you can navigate them consciously, then all of a sudden you can swim where you were drowning before, right? But that's, it's hard work um, and strange work. Right? It, it leads to very strange places. Um, so this is sort of what I call the, the art of shape-shifting uh, because you have to develop a kind of flexibility and openness and ability to flow, right? But also you have to have this willingness to sort of enter these other spaces, these other ways of being, which can be quite uncomfortable. But once you get there, you sort of can make an ally of them. 
Um, and, and again, it's very different to approach the cave on purpose, even if there's something growling inside of it, than it is to be walking along whistling and have something pounce on you from the bushes. Great. Um, when you're talking, I just see all these little bubbles of <laughs> different lights I let it go. So I think we'll go with, as we're talking through this, I'm thinking about the person on the autism spectrum that's listening to this and the person on the schizo spectrum that's mm -hmm. listening to this. And maybe they're considering, oh, since I'm farther on one side, mm -hmm. does that mean that I need to get more into the middle? You know, there's something wrong with me. There might be, but what, what I would love to touch on is also how our current society has created a n less an optimal place for people that are further on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that that's true? Is like, yeah, I think that the so the course of psychology until relatively recently has been a, a pretty neurotypical kind of stance, right? And we see this both in sort of processing. Um, issues where we think of autism spectrum as a disorder and we think of schizotypal thinking as a disorder. Um, and likewise, of course, we see this even in things like um, attention deficit, so ADD and, and ADHD, right? I am inclined towards a, a neurodiverse perspective, which is to say that humans fall into a broad range of things. The question of whether or not those things is function are functional, a lot of it has to do with the social structure in which they're interacting. So. You know, in many um, traditional communities, right, you can see behaviors and patterns of thinking in people that here might be construed as schizotypal or schizophrenic, but there is a recognized social function for them, right? There, there is a value placed. Their ability to sort of move into those interconnected symbolic spaces is recognized, and there is a social role for it. Likewise, you know, there are lots of opportunities for people who are neurodiverse potentially to use their, um, you know, their particular sort of configuration as a strength, not simply as a weakness. Now, everybody, of course, can benefit from expanding their capacities, right? So to a certain extent, we're always developing. We want to be developing our strengths, but we also want to be trying to develop a breadth and a flexibility, right? And so I think everybody benefits from that, regardless of where they're at, right? Practicing the sort of, you know, skills and abilities that you do not feel the strongest in is going to benefit you at some level and give you some flexibility. But it's not necessarily the case that we need everybody to come right towards the center. I think that that's a bizarre fallacy, um, because it also relies on an idea of normalcy that isn't actually true. It's not that there are some normal people who are in the center. Normalcy is a myth. If you look around at people, you'll find that everybody is off on some scale or another, right? Everybody's personality is different. Everybody is dealing with certain kinds of, um, you know, whatever, neuroses and processing issues and so on and so forth, many of which are inevitable because of the nature of how intelligence itself works, right? You can't kind of get around them. So the idea of pathologizing those things is deeply problematic, um, I think, but it's still the case that for everybody, there are these shadow aspects of ourselves, these undeveloped, untapped, or discarded aspects of ourselves that often provide the material that we need for growth. And it's easy to get locked into a current configuration because you've had success in it. If you, know, you give a man a hammer, he treats everything as a nail, and we get very good at using our strengths in certain ways to navigate certain situations. 
but it's very often the case that that means that we're missing out on whole domains. And that applies regardless of sort of what our specifics are. All of us have the potential to sort of grow, um, provided that the framework is there for us to do that in like a safe way where we can explore it without sort of judgment and with support. So yeah, uh, I tend to think that, you know, people are going to be on a wide variety of, of spectra. That's just the case. And so identifying kind of where you are is wonderful and figuring out what you can do with that and what way it's useful to you is wonderful. And then otherwise it's just addressing how that's going to fit in with the course of your life. And something is only a problem if it's a problem. If you find a configuration of life and if people can help you create that support and configuration of life that allows you to contribute, then it's not a problem, right? It's a strength. Uh, one of my personal favorite aspects of Jungian psychology is that concept of the shadow mm -hmm. and how it can be transformed into a gift. Mm -hmm. like there, there is a pearl inside of this hard shell. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to now start getting into post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And if we could start with some sort of segue around needing to accept your shadows. And I don't know if we ever fully transmute them or transform them. Never but fully. Like living in that boat. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as a Jungian, if you're if you're coming towards the work of Carl Jung, you know, it's 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 a wild and woolly path, right? It's it's a labyrinth. It's not straightforward. People always want it to be straightforward, and it isn't necessarily. But he did sort of lay out a very basic kind of you know sequence that you could go through which you know you might be able to use as sort of guide guide stone or you know steps in, in a path um so he says the apprentice piece is shadow work and the the journeyman piece okay is um uh, contrasexual soul image work that's complicated and then you know the masterpiece is this work with the self right where you're dealing with sort of the mystical the divine relationships with deep questions of being but you start with the shadow you start with the shadow and why do you start with the shadow oh, one second Thanks. Great, thank you. Okay. All right, so start with the shadow. Start with the shadow. So you start with the shadow. Why do you start with the shadow? Well, for one reason, you start with the shadow because it's accessible to you, right? In, indeed, you know, most people, even though they try to block much of this from consciousness, will have that moment when at two in the morning, they feel horrible. They think about these things that they've done or these aspects of themselves they don't want to consider, right? They are confronted by them in the mirror. So the shadow is, is always close, like our actual shadow. It's sort of connected to our feet, never goes away. Um, so starting with shadow work, you know, is, is a place to start because it's so close to us. And also because it is possible to reach into the shadow and find what, what Jung called the golden shadow, right? And the golden shadow is many of the things that we've sort of thrown away, that we've pushed out of our personality, are aspects of ourselves that are maybe not inherently bad, but that we've made a choice. We've decided to be this instead of that, right? I'm a scientific person, not an artistic person. And so art gets thrown into the shadow and we see it as not me. Or we've been pressured to do so. So, you know, at the age of six, here we are, we're drawing with crayons and somebody come, comes along and says, stop that nonsense, like grow up. And right, having that kind of impact, we throw it away. And so there are these aspects of the shadow, the golden shadow that 
are all these parts of ourselves that have been thrown away prematurely that really offer potential avenues for our growth and development. That if we can reach in and bring them back out, that really they offer opportunities for us to become something more than what we are and to explore aspects of ourselves and the world that we have not explored before. Now, that's not all that's in there. And so in, in a way, that's, um, you know, that's the thing that gets us in the door with shadow work. Because the other thing that's in there are really those things that we want to exile from ourselves because we know that we've hurt people, or that we've hurt ourselves. And all of us have those things. We've all had moments of cruelty. We've all experienced moments of deep shame. We've all had these moments where we've done things that do not square with our sense of ourselves and our sense of what is right and how we ought to treat people. And we throw those things in the shadows so we don't have to look at them. But that's not all that's in there. And being able to reach into that material and pull out not just the, the good and these aspects of ourselves that allow for growth, but also these other parts of ourselves gives us an opportunity to become more complete. You'll never exhaust the shadow, right? It's, it's inexhaustible. There's always more things to pull out of it in the same way as you can never exhaust the contents of your unconscious. But every time you do pull something out of it, you are enriching and making more complex your own version of yourself. And it's not just a question of confrontation with it, it's also a question of acceptance to gradually be able to understand that you're not perfect. Nobody is perfect, right? If you can accept that, you are much more likely to be able to control it, right, in some way and to not do those things than if you push it away from your mind. Because if you try to push these things away, it's, it's like um, the shadow in Peter Pan. In Peter Pan, Peter Pan decides one day to take a pair of silver scissors and cuts his shadow off his feet. And it goes running around in the room by itself and he gets quite sick until they can capture it and sew it back on, right? Well, that's a really good symbol of the situation. When people push aspects of themselves away, those aspects don't die, they don't vanish, they don't go away. They just move further away from their consciousness, further away from the center of their agency and their control. They go running around on their own and they cause problems in their life because they're ignored. They want, they want attention. They will push in, they will affect things. They'll have all these effects, but the further you push them away, the further you've distanced yourselves from them, the less communication you have with them, the less reasonably they behave. And so of course you see people push aspects of themselves away and those fractured pieces run around and cause them all sorts of problems, behavioral problems and so on and so forth. But if instead you can learn to pull those things close and open a dialogue with them of acceptance and figure out how they're gonna fit in, then you both enrich and complexify your own sense of self, but also you create a more harmonious inner community which, in which you're able to deal with more. Could you continue on with that example of the child who crayons, pushes mm -hmm. it away, and now as an adult um, has more or less cut away that shadow, that part of her. How, yeah, I would love to like just continue on with that story. How does that manifest then as, a, as an adult? So the process, of, the process of maturation as we see it within our culture, very often is this process of carving away aspects in order to sort of reduce people into a narrow line. And we make 
uh, a lot of noise. There's a lot of lip service to an idea of like wholeness and growth and well-being and so on and so forth. But like in practice, what we often do is um, we shame and scold and traumatize people away from natural interest, right? Uh, you know, at its best, education opens up, for instance, right? Possibilities of, of growth and openness and curiosity. But at its worst, it closes those things down. It stops people from asking questions. It stops people from pursuing natural interest. So, you know, when we take an example like, uh, you know, a kid who's really in art who gets shamed out of it. Okay, good. If you could use magic, like a kid that wants to be a magician. Oh, sure. That'd be great. Okay, sure. Thanks. <laughs> no problem. So when we get a kid who has a natural interest, like say we have a kid who's really into, into magic, right? Into sort of card tricks, pressed to digitation, right? And that gets drummed out of them because it's not serious or it's not a career or it's not appropriate or you need to grow up or, right? And you will see cases of this, right? I have clients that I've seen who, you know, worked really hard on certain kinds of things only to have, you know, their, their parent or grandparent or guardian, right, throw those things in the garbage without telling them, right, or forbid them to engage them. Where you have this very narrow adult notion of achievement that's focused around specific kinds of grades, right, the numbers coming in, the numbers coming in, and people become very oriented to that kind of external validation, that external achievement. But the problem with that is that external validation, right, external reinforcement is actually a very poor source of reinforcement for human beings, right? We know that intrinsic motivation is actually a much more powerful and indeed sort of sustainable form of motivation. And our culture gets this wrong over and over and over again. We have people in creative professions, for instance, and how do we reward them for their creativity? Monetary bonuses, but that is an extrinsic motivator, right? And all of the science points to the fact that if you do that, what you do is in fact undercut the intrinsic aspect of the creative activity. So when somebody is sort of reaching back into their golden shadow and trying to pull that up, whether it's a love of art or whether you know it's a love of magic, um, right? Often it's the case that they have to reach in and they have to overcome all this shame and judgment about the uselessness of what they're doing or about the inappropriateness of what they're doing, right? Or it may be self-imposed. It may be that they've made that decision. They've come to this crux where they've said, Either I'm going to do this and make a go of it, right, artistically or, you know, and magic is an art, right? Or, you know, I'm going to buckle down and get serious. And so they go and do this other thing and they often find that it is dry and sterile and that they, right, they get what they ostensibly want and then find that they feel empty that they didn't pursue. Now, that's not to say that there isn't some kind of negotiation that sometimes has to happen in the real world, right? I think it'd be hard to pay your bills sometimes with this. And so, but finding a space for it at all, instead of just simply tipping it into the garbage or having somebody else tip it into the garbage and threaten you if you decide to try to get it back out of the garbage is something that happens to so many people. Uh, and, you know, we make choices sometimes, but those choices are far more binary in their appearance than they are in their reality. We don't have to necessarily be a this or a that. We don't have to push ourselves in easy categories, but it can be difficult for people to see that until they sort of start to experiment with who they are and how they're going to grow. Great. Okay, last question for me, and then I'm gonna go over to the guys, they will switch off here. Yeah. Um, how would you define post-traumatic growth? How would I define post-traumatic growth? Mm. So, 
there has been an interesting line in research in the last bunch of years looking at cases where people seemed to respond to traumatic circumstances by having a kind of burst or expansion of, of growth, that they incorporate it differently. And the examination of, of trauma, you know, we are used to thinking of trauma as a solely negative factor, right? It is a bad thing that is painful and to be avoided, right? And certainly it, it has bad consequences a lot of the time. It can be really difficult for people to navigate, uh, even though it is to some extent inevitable. When I take on a client, um, a therapy client, um, I'm not asking the question, do they have trauma? I'm asking the question, where is the trauma? There's always trauma. Nobody gets out of the parking lot without putting dents in the car. It's nobody. So, and, and the nature of the world is in some sense inherently traumatic, right? Because it hurts us, because tragedy is part of sort of the skeleton of life. However, there do seem to be sort of big differences in how people process that. For some people, they experience something traumatic and it really knocks them on their ass, right? It spins them in a way that becomes increasingly difficult for them to, to deal with. They feel out of control. And frankly, a lot of that is that there are often lacks of support for this. Because trauma is seen as this bad thing and because our culture is sort of afraid of mental illness, people don't get the support. They don't come around. They're not there to work with that and they're not there to support it. We wanna medicate it away or make it go away, right? For the people, however, who encounter trauma and somehow see this burst of growth, I mean, it seemed initially when science began looking at this as being kind of paradoxical. And yet, in a way, it's not paradoxical. It is in fact what we would expect, right, in some sense a flourishing system. A complex system encounters something and it is jarred by that and then it becomes more complex and, and it rises to that particular need, right? It learns from it. And it could be hard to learn from trauma, right? Because of the, the fracture that trauma induces in us, the way that it separates us against ourselves and overwhelms us in many ways. It can be difficult if you are not sort of trained in the skills or you don't know people trained in the skills to encounter that. But we all have that capacity. We all have that capacity to make an approach. And in making that particular approach, trauma offers, much as the shadow offers in, in Jungian thinking, not just something to be defeated, not just an adversary, but something to be made an ally of, right? Something to learn from, something to pass through, something to incorporate into ourselves to gain greater depth and greater strength. And that seems to be what's happening when people go through post-traumatic growth, that they have managed to find a set of structures that let them meaningfully process what happened to them in a way that then expands their own horizons. Um, and we can see some of the, you know, some of the sort of cultural features that facilitate that. So um, uh, people with a strong religious background tend to weather this sort of thing much better. And indeed, we, we see that spontaneously happening in some cases, right? We have this concept of the, the foxhole convert, right? So somebody in World War I who's getting shelled, they're undergoing trauma, right, in the trenches, and all of a sudden they become a convert. We see the same thing with prison conversions, where people all of a sudden will move from a, a deeply traumatized state, as prison typically is, right? And obviously, probably having traumas in their past in any event, right, if they, uh, you know, were sort of involved in crime and so on and so forth, that's usually has to do with trauma. You see those people too, suddenly snapping into a kind of religious framework often, and that 
restructuring them and allowing them to, to lift above it. You see it in Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Where the, the whole point of learning how to you know, identify that you're going to bottom out and that you're going to need something to grab you, something inside yourself or something, you know, if you, if you happen to be religious, outside yourself. And the point is that you, you hit rock bottom and hitting rock bottom is about things going to pieces so that you can then grasp that and learn from it and rise above it and come to some, you know, broader sense of, of connection and your own capacities. So. Great. Thank you. Um, if you want to go use a restroom or stretch your legs, we'll just take a quick five minute break. Sure. And yeah. Some OJ in the fridge. Oh, uh... okay. Water, water is good. Thank you. Uh, okay. Too long. Very good. Okay. Very, very good. Yeah, we run into the wonderful problem of, oh man, we could go down so many avenues and it's 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 hard to listen and like be present and anticipate the same question or the next question because I'm just yeah seeing all these bubbles. Uh -huh. um, I'd imagine that's not unlike your normal work day, huh? Uh, it's exactly <laughs> like my normal work day, um, but it's it's also what I experience too. Yeah. Um, as you as you might imagine. We're good to go with the cameras. Yeah. Yeah. I get the the advantage of sitting there and listening to Jess and yourself. Mm -hmm. Converse. I, I take some notes. So something. It's going to maybe seem like we're jumping around a little bit. That's fine. Uh, and we're going to fill in some blanks. We'll start with an easy one. Uh, what is consciousness? Oh, that's an easy one. Okay. Uh, what is consciousness? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, the answer is that we don't know. Um, you know, for all that um, you know, many scientists or philosophers have attempted to foreclose on the question, what is consciousness? The answer is we don't have the answer yet. Um, however, it's not that we can't say anything useful about it. Um, consciousness seems to be a kind of metacognitive system that we have, right? So a kind of mind watching our mind, which integrates together information. So when things come together in our consciousness, they have this, this bound together, this unified kind of quality, right, that presents to us. And it's clear that information doesn't have to be conscious to be functional. There's all kinds of things operating in our unconscious that are required for our mind to operate or our body to operate that we're never aware of at all, much as there is with systems in sort of our body, right? We, I don't have any idea what my pancreas is doing right now, right? Hopefully working. Um, the same goes for unconscious contents. But consciousness seems to have this um, unique functional quality which integrates information together in a particular kind of way and allows us, therefore, to sort of, uh, in a way, transcend, right? And operate back upon the processes, the unconscious process beneath us. So by sort of creating this other level where we can examine, it allows us to look at what's happening beneath, but also to intervene on what's happening beneath. And that can be really interesting. So one of my areas of research is uh, neurofeedback, right? So neurofeedback is where you take something like an EEG, right? You take somebody's brain waves and you run it into a computer, right? Give them a headset, run it into a computer. And we use video games because it's easier with kids. They like video games. Who doesn't? Uh, they use it in such a way as that their brain waves are affecting their performance in the game. Now, normally you don't have any direct access to those. But the interesting thing about neurofeedback, like biofeedback, is that if you gain conscious access, if you get a mechanism of feedback so that you have conscious access, you can learn to control it consciously. And that's remarkable, right? And not especially well understood. So yeah, consciousness seems to be 
the system which is designed to allow us, in some sense, to skillfully intervene on ourselves, right? To process information at this higher level so that we can then learn and reach back down and further and better affect, right, ourselves. And of course, by extension, our relationship with the world, our relationship with other people, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and on top of that, I mean, on the side, even though we don't know how it works and we don't know what it's for fully, it is still the single most precious thing to us. I could offer you a billion dollars and, you know, uh, you know, whatever, the most beautiful wife in the world and a fast car and, you know, immortality. But if I gave all those things to you and I said, but you won't be conscious, you would decline. Consciousness is the most precious thing to us, but we don't know what it is and we don't know what it's for, not yet. And it's possible we may never know. It's possible that it may be an ultimate mystery in some sense. But, you know, cognitive science certainly is making some good headway on the question in terms of understanding it and in terms of um, getting a theoretical idea of what it's doing. So it's an exciting time to work in that field, certainly. Yeah, I, I see in my own head, and I'm sure a lot of people agree, you know, we're discovering more about black holes on the macro. Mm -hmm. And over here, we're learning more about quantum on the micro. And it seems to just, the, the rules seem to fit together and this ultimate expression through us, potentially consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think consciousness is a responsibility? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yes, I think consciousness is a responsibility. So it's a responsibility in the same way that our other capacities are responsibilities. So take intelligence for a second. I grew up in a family where intelligence was considered one of the preeminent virtues. Like one of the harshest things you could say is don't be stupid. Right? And the idea that you know, one is smart and the people around are stupid and don't worry they're just stupid and don't worry they're not as smart, right? This was sort of a, a value that got repeated over and over again. And so when I was young, I thought of intelligence as being a kind of virtue, right? A kind of personal virtue. And then when I was a little older, I looked at intelligence and I thought, it's not a virtue. It's like height. I didn't do anything, really, to earn my height. It just happens that I can reach a higher shelf than some other people. Now, statistically speaking, like whatever, I test well on IQ tests, whatever that means. I can't fix my own car, and I'm not particularly good at my taxes, and like there are lots of things I can't do, but in terms of IQ tests, okay. And so I started to think, well, there's actually nothing moral about this at all. It's just a fact. And the fact that people get upset about talking about these sort of comparative things really actually says more about our society's sort of screwed up view on it, right? That we. The idea that somebody might be smarter than somebody else in some particular way is sort of forbidden. So for a long time, I thought it wasn't moral. And then later, I came to a different conclusion. And the conclusion was, well, no, it is a moral property. It's a moral property insofar as we develop it. We have a responsibility to ourselves and to the people around us to appropriate our own self-development, to borrow John Verveke's term, to appropriate our own self-development. We have a moral responsibility, in a sense, to, to expand ourselves. And so that capacity includes consciousness. Our consciousness is a tremendous gift, right? Insofar as it allows us to experience the, the depth of the world and being. I mean, literally, it's, it's, if we don't have it, we are not experiencing those things. But consciousness is not a simple on-off. It's not just that we have consciousness or we don't have consciousness. 
There are degrees and shades of consciousness. And so increasing our consciousness is about increasing our depth of experience and our depth of meaning. And yeah, that is a moral obligation in the sense that we have both to ourselves to like push the boundaries of being because otherwise, what are we doing? What are we doing if we're not pushing the boundaries of our conscious experience? We're drifting from cradle to grave and like working a bit in the middle, right? There is an obligation in a sense to the very fact of being alive, I think that's there. But additionally, because of the nature of that expansion, we also owe it to people around us to try to push that and to try to experience the, the breadth and richness of it. Um, because in so doing, we bring back gifts for everybody. For every one of us that expands our consciousness, and that's a term very laden with sort of 1960s material, but for every one of us that expands our consciousness and brings that back, we are enriching a common storehouse for everybody that is making life a more interesting, better, more worthwhile place. So yes, I do think consciousness has sort of a, a moral obligation, that it's a duty in a sense. Okay. So do you, understanding that we do have metrics for it and that also <laughs> we have no clue, which is a beautiful paradox in itself. Right. Um, do you think there's higher and lower states of consciousness? Yes. Um, so I do think that there are higher and lower states of consciousness. Uh, higher and lower obviously are fraught terms because that's a metaphor in and of itself. But we don't have a very good scheme yet for states of consciousness. People have tried to categorize these things, but we're a little bit like biology was before Darwin. Before Darwin, biology essentially consisted in curio cabinets, right? So people would have these cabinets of sort of like dried finches and weird spiders, and right? It was a set of curiosities. Look at this, look at this, look at this. Isn't this interesting? Um, it wasn't until Darwin, and then later, of course, until genetics, that we began to be able to develop a science, right? That we began to be able to categorize these things in a meaningful way that showed how they were related to each other, right? An overall kind of system. So in a sense, biology sort of starts with Darwin. We are still waiting for the Darwin of consciousness. Like it hasn't happened yet. So we can collect these altered states. And if you do um, any kind of deep investigation uh, of these things, you'll find that there are some real oddballs, right? There are the things that people generally know about and accept. And then there are other altered states that are extremely difficult to categorize and exceptionally strange. Uh, and if you happen to be something of a connoisseur of altered states, um, and I have often fancied myself a connoisseur of altered states, right? You're going out and you're experiencing all sorts of different things and then you're bringing these back and you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, where does it fit, right? It's very hard. So we're in this early curio cabinet stage. However, there has been really interesting work in cognitive science and neuroscience recently that's starting to find ways to relate these things meaningfully, coming up with sort of sets of axes so that we can begin to figure out how these states relate to each other. And one thing that it seems to me is becoming very clear is that um, one of the ways that we can look at states of consciousness, especially when we're looking at sort of brain states, is to consider um, complexity. So, you know, different brain states and different patterns within, within the brain often have to do with patterns of connection. What, what things are connected to each other, how those network properties are, are emerging. And different altered states are gonna have different sort of features of connection and features of network processing. Um, however, it's also the case that 
you know, even when you're getting uh, a kind of, you know, like breaking up of the system, a kind of chaotic breaking up, and you're also getting things locking together, if you get those two things happening simultaneously, you're going to get complexification, right? Which is a simultaneous integration and differentiation, right? You get those two things happening at once. Things are separating out and they're integrating together. And if you need a metaphor for that, you, you can think about like, um, uh, like, a, like a fetus, a zygote. Right? So, you know, the uh, sperm fertilizes the egg, and what you have is a single cell that's undifferentiated. It doesn't do anything in particular, right? But it doubles and it doubles and it doubles, and eventually you get a great big block of these cells, but they're all identical. They're still stem cells. But shortly after that, they start to become different kinds of things. These ones start to become bone. These ones start to become brain. These ones start to become heart. They differentiate from each other, right? They literally organ organize. Right? They become organs. But as they do so, they're not just separating out. They're also forming dense networks of interconnection. Those things are happening at the same time. If we look inside of our body, there are these subsystems, which clearly need to operate on their own terms, but they are also closely, closely interrelated. Well, we see the same thing with brain functioning. right? And altered states, it seems, are one of these things that can create this kind of complexification. So when we're talking about higher and lower states, very often it's the case that um, states that engender complexification and that embody complexification are higher because they seem to contain a, a richer degree of consciousness. There is a, a brightness and a, and a reality and a quality to them that seems to exceed in many important respects what we think of as normal everyday consciousness. And we see this in mystical experiences, right, uh, in particular, but also it's, it's possible to have these spontaneous states, these breakthrough moments. Right? Flow, peak experiences. So these things are, are clearly sort of more functional than, more real than, brighter than, um, than your everyday consciousness. And then, of course, there are the states of consciousness that are beneath that, where we feel less functional, more fractured, more in pain, right? Less present. So, mm -hmm. so where I want to go now is I want to try to connect. Eventually, we'll go to all three states. Mm -hmm. to go to altered states on purpose. Just kind of deep. This isn't a question, I'm just working with it here. Moving that scale of consciousness. I agree, up and down is not always good, right? It's mm -hmm. probably like some complex. Yeah, space. it's a big multi-dimensional space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you think you can expand your consciousness intentionally? Yeah, you can expand your consciousness intentionally. Um, you know, if you think about if you think about sort of the the idea that you know, you know, it's oversimplified and it's a metaphor. But if you think about the idea of consciousness as sort of existing on a set of sliders, okay, right? Like you know that that you can move between certain kinds of extremes. So here your attention is high, here your attention is low, here your sense of agency is high, here your sense of agency is low, and so on and so forth. You can think about those things as creating a kind of big multi-dimensional space, what we call a phase space, right? So that any particular state of consciousness is going to be like one coordinate in this very complicated space. Most of the time, our regular consciousness tends to hover right around a set of states that is, you know, so let's say close to the center of that, right? It tends to sort of go back to a kind of homeostatic balance within a small range. 
And it's not a fixed point. Our consciousness is shifting through that space through the day. We become more and less awake, more and less emotional, more and less rational, right? We go to sleep and we're passing further outside of that. We'll be going through, say, REM sleep, which is a different state of consciousness, and NREM, which we used to think was dreamless. And more recently, we've realized that no, it just has a unique form of dreaming associated with it that's quite different than what we would think of as, as you know, REM dreaming with its sort of experiences. And then there are exceptional experiences that we may have you know, due to sort of natural conditions, fever. Anybody who's ever had a fever, who's been sick with fever, has had the experience of, frankly, an extremely unpleasant altered state of consciousness, sort of apocalyptic and repetitious. It loops in your mind and you're in it over and over again. People have experienced that. People have experienced extremely strong emotional states, anger, love, heartbreak, sadness, hope, joy. Those things are powerful states. There's a reason that the ancients thought of those things as gods, as being possessed by gods and a kind of madness, right? Because they bend the way that we see things, right? It's an altered state. And then above and beyond that, you can think about all the things that people do specifically to experience altered states. So like, Kids like to spin, right? Spin, 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 spin to make themselves dizzy. Why? Because it's interesting, because it feels weird, because you watch your visual experience track, and yet we can see the corollary of that, right, in, say, the Sufi mystics, right? Islamic Sufi mystics, who, who the whirling dervishes. And there's some interesting scientific, I have some interesting scientific hypotheses about why. I think that doing that uh, hyperactivates your cerebellum, which is your balance center originally, but also is involved in connecting together um, long range aspects in your brain. So it provokes insight. So we know that when somebody has an experience of insight, their cerebellum lights up. Well, if you hyperactivate your cerebellum by spinning and spinning, you make it much more likely you're gonna experience insights. And indeed, that's exactly what they um, what they describe, right? More to the point, people will seek out, every culture everywhere seeks out altered states. And it's not just humans, it's animals. Uh, monkeys at resorts will go get drunk off spare drinks at Club Med. Why? You know, uh, pigs in the forest in Africa, right? Boars will go and dig up the roots of the Boga Tabernanthe and chew it. Does it have nutritional value for them? Not significantly given the effort, but it does definitely induce an altered state. Um, many animals have been seen consuming you know, fungi that are known to have hallucinogenic properties. Why, right? And the answer to this is that, yeah, there are some immediate functional things that being in an altered state might let you do. But more to the point, when, if you're in this phase space, you suddenly chart a point that's way outside where you've normally been, it does two things. One, it shows you, the conscious individual, that the scope of your reality is not as small as you thought. There are possibilities for being outside of that. And some people will just get that linked to the drug and they'll just be like, I need the drug. But that's, it's missing the point. The real point is that this is something your mind is capable of doing. If you could theoretically get there with an exogenous influence, you can get there, right, just theoretically through changing the processes of your mind, right? This is something you'll see sort of religious mystics talk about, right? They, in the 60s, they would take LSD and say, oh yeah, this is very interesting, but you don't need it, right? You can get there through other means. So it shows you that there are possibilities outside the normal configurations of your being, and that's important, right? 
uh, somebody who takes a dose of magic mushrooms and suddenly is like feels connected to the world and feels like everything is alive. It's showing them that that is a place that they theoretically can be, that it's a possibility. But also, it shows the brain itself. It, it, it gives the brain a new set of parameters with which to contextualize and relativize what it experiences. So, you know, if you think about this, you know, you're used to whatever you're used to, right? And when you experience something that's different than that, it's going to seem extreme in some way or another. If you've eaten nothing but boiled English potatoes your whole life, then something even mildly spicy is going to seem like fire in your mouth. But if you've had a bunch of spicy food, then all of a sudden, right, the farther reaches of eating ghost peppers or something is not that big of a deal. Likewise, you know, you think about, um, you know, uh, you know, when I used to go down to Florida, for instance, I would go down and I'd be in shorts and a t-shirt because it would be 75 degrees and it would be freezing in Canada. Down there, everybody would be wearing, you know, two sweaters. Why? Because the divergence from what they're used to is the relevant factor that they're tracking in a relevant sense. For them, it's cold. For me, it's hot. So the point is, the farther you go, and you can think about this with travel too, right? You go to other cultures, you begin to experience other cultural materials, other styles, and all of a sudden, you're not as closed in on this small set of things that you've encountered in your local system. So in a sense, yes, you can expand your consciousness because by seeking out these kinds of altered states in a thoughtful, reflective way, right, you are expanding the overall possibilities of your mind, the functional possibilities of your mind, both consciously and unconsciously. Um, let's think brain, less mind right now. Sure. What is an altered state of consciousness? Hmm. So in neurological terms, altered states of consciousness seem to be, for the most part, alterations in patterns of connectivity. A lot of the time, if we consider this, we can look at sort of work around something like a psychedelic, right? Where it's introduced and it's interacting with certain kinds of receptor systems. But what's happening then in turn is that you're getting differences in these sort of firing patterns within the brain. Now, it's a mistake to a great extent. People sort of want to localize function within the brain as though they're looking at a map of Europe. Right? We see this with consciousness theory all the time, where people keep looking for the piece of the brain that makes consciousness, as though they're going to jab their finger and it's like, oh, it turns out consciousness is Liechtenstein right, on the map. But it doesn't work like that. Functional localization within the brain, as we found, is not as accurate as we think. Brain areas get retasked to different things, and it really seems to be patterns of firing and connectivity that matter. So one thing that we do see with, say, psychedelics, right? if you look at psilocybin, is that we see that that change in functional connectivity um, that gets produced routes information in ways that it, it sort of doesn't normally get routed in consciousness. So to, to one end, right, we have the default mode network. And the default no mode network is a, right, a set of brain connections that is often fired up when we are in a state of, say, um, self-consciousness. Self right? And what we see with psilocybin is that we see a reduction of activity in the default mode network, and we see those connections routing through the brain, but around the default mode network. Well, what that means is that you're having novel connections. And when you have novel connections, right, you form the, the basis for potential insight, right? Because you can think about those connections in all kinds of ways. When people experience um, psychedelic synesthesia, for instance, right, where they're like, oh, I can see the music. Well, what's happening there? What's happening is that the auditory center is connecting with the visual center in a way that it does not normally connect. Now, that's a capacity that we all have. 
uh, inherently, right? So literacy is a form of synesthesia. We look at a little black mark on a page, but what we experience is first the notion of a sound and then a concept. It's a synesthesia that we build ourselves into. We are capable of doing that, right? But the difference is that the psychedelic alters these normal patterns of connectivity in such a way as the connections that are being created are routing around our normal sense of, of ego, our normal sense of self, right? In, in a way that we haven't seen before. And new patterns of connection within the brain equal a new sense of experience and a new sense of identity and a new sense of construal. All altered states effectively are doing some form of that. They simply differ in terms of what the patterns of connection that they're making are. And therefore, right, um, you know, what sorts of experiences they produce for us. And it does seem that the experience is sort of as important as just the, the basic um, kind of reconnection aspect of things, although that's somewhat of an open scientific question. Um, but, you know, it seems as though the experience is quite important. So from a brain perspective, it's patterns of connectivity. But I don't know that the book is necessarily closed on it only being a brain phenomenon. You use the word agency, and like, chit-chat-wise. I just, you know, I probably know Lewin's expression, personality plus environment equals behavior. Mm. It's an older one. Cognitive cognition, cognitive traits plus environment equals behavior, but I, I think agency and the environment, that's where I want to go with this. I right. call ourselves the agent, Yeah. your own agency, and all the things that are in it, and then it interacts with the environment. So you mentioned experience mm -hmm. so psychedelics are usually not fully but more of an internal mm -hmm. shaking of the snow globe like as you mentioned that it probably shuts down and turns on other mode networks as well right? mm -hmm. beyond the default mode network for sure um, and forms certain kinds of permanent connections right and so you know we, we the three of us believe altered states of consciousness is a human right mm -hmm. and uh just trying to link um, altered states of consciousness in the environment. Can you alter your state of consciousness through experience or experiencing new environments? Yes. You can definitely alter your state of consciousness through experiencing new environments. Climb a mountain. The, the you know, if you climb up a mountain or a high hill, you're going to experience certain kinds of like physical stresses, which pushing through is going to produce an altered state. Um, during the period of my life where I briefly took up running, I got to experience runner's high. And the first time it hit me, I was like, oh, I get this now. It's a drug. Um, like now I understand, right? I feel like I'm flying. So you'll push through that. You'll push through exhaustion and so on and so forth. But that's not the whole thing. Once you get up there, you're going to experience the view. And the view in and of itself is a kind of altered state. Right? There's a reason that we so often use metaphors, higher states of consciousness. The notion of higher is metaphor. It's not literally it's higher, right? In, in sort of the sense in which we would think about that. But rather that when we get up on top of a mountain, or we get up into a high place and we look down, we're experiencing a view from above. And that is a close metaphor for what we're experiencing in states of wisdom and states of rationality, a view from above. We feel as though we've risen above it. Right? That we have distance, that we have scope, that we have some sense of right? scope and mastery and so on and so forth. That's an altered state. And people routinely report that it's an altered state. Um, darkness can very easily create altered states in people, and it's been used traditionally to do so. Isolation, which is an environmental feature, right? So 
you know, we might think about this in terms of sensory deprivation, like a flotation tank or something. But traditionally, right, caves and, and right, retreating, becoming a hermit, were means of sort of social isolation and sensory reduction. Those things can create altered states. Heat creates altered states. Cold creates altered states. Exertion, sleep deprivation, sex deprivation, food deprivation, all those things create altered states. Um, you know, uh, fear, a strong encounter with something. If you have a strong encounter with a predator, you are definitely in an altered state. And it's very easy to see after the fact, right? When, when you sort of hit the fear and maybe sort of rise out of the fear, you have that moment of clear thought, which not everybody has. Um, I've been lucky enough to hit some extremely fearful things in my life, and I am reassured by the fact that my response in those moments was collected, right? That I responded even though I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I was thinking about it. So any of those kinds of situations produce for us, if we are sufficiently sort of reflective and we, you know, we take these things into account, are producing altered states. It's just that other modes of doing so, right? Ritual and uh, psychotechnological practices, meditation and trance and so on and so forth, and exogenous things like psychedelics, they just allow you to push that state further. But there's no reason that you can't, of course, expand your consciousness merely in experiencing the world. The world is full of fascinating complexity that affects us in all sorts of ways. Do you use the term stressor? So. We're looking, we're thinking physiologically, you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, temperature, um, energy mm -hmm. in and out through food, breath, yep, such. Yep. Um, we can be kind of baseline, as always, on a spectrum or a graph, right? Sure, sure. Do you, if we fast, would you call that a stressor? If we ice bath, would you call that a stressor? Tra uh, training, anything. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. I want to try to do, Anderson, is you mentioned secure and insecure in the world. I see. And then... 10, don't want to put it anywhere, don't want to put words in your mouth. Insecure tends to have stressors that yes. can be there, right? Yeah. Um, and they can be environmental and internal, um, intentional and unintentional. I think I get where you're going, yeah. So um, I don't customarily use the term stressor, but you, you could use the term stressor as a general kind of categorical thing because most of these states you know, when we put ourselves into relatively extreme conditions and environments, produce stress. They produce stress on our body and thus produce stress, you know, psychologically speaking, right? They can be quite uncomfortable. Um, however, right, that, that state of stress and the state of sort of insecurity um, is typically closely related to whether or not we are engaging it intentionally. If we're not engaging something intentionally, if it's something that is happening to us, right, that we did not choose and that we do not want, we tend to struggle against it and we experience helplessness and powerlessness, right? We have these strong feelings of wanting to escape. And that typically increases our stress because we feel powerless. And after a certain amount of time, it can sort of crush us, it can collapse us, right? And we, we pick up learned helplessness where we stop even trying to sort of escape the, the source of the stressor. If, on the other hand, we are moving towards the stressor, if this is an intentional move that we're making, we have a very different set of resources then to sort of engage, right? We can engage with a, a no pain, no gain kind of attitude. And while it still may be exceptionally stressful to be in a relatively extreme physiological or psychological state, being able to center ourselves on this is a thing I chose to do, right, does enable us often to center ourselves and push through.
Now, that doesn't mean that it's not an extreme experience. I have had many experiences in my life where I intentionally sought out what were highly stressful, um, extreme and uncomfortable experiences. And partway through was like, just you just have to remember like, you're doing this on purpose. Uh, and sometimes had to say to myself like, why, why am I doing this? Everybody else I know is at a barbecue or something. And here I am like, doing something extremely unpleasant that I seem to have done to myself. Like, I, am I a crazy person? But, but the yield of that is kind of undeniable, right? That you push yourself into that space. And I think, again, that, that's something that we have seen and that we recognize in athleticism, right? That th there is that kind of approach. And in some cases, sort of in general sort of self-development, there is certainly um, a, a subculture of like intense pushing yourself into it. Mm, often that is not very nuanced. But yeah, this idea that you are entering things that are taking you out of your comfort zone, you are entering spaces that are uncertain and ambiguous and unpleasant often. Um, and that those things are producing stress, but that stress is not intrinsically damaging, right? That rather it can be a catalyst for a kind of reintegration of the system at a higher level of functionality. Depending on your timeline, I'm happy to do this again. Sorry, I'm probably talking too long and it's a bit slow. No, 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 no. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's great to, to sit down and then try to pick apart some of the wisdom that I've developed over the years. Uh, if I was to ask you, what is visualization? Would you mm -hmm. have something for that? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. Um, what is visualization? So, uh, you know, most human beings um, seem, seem to have some capacity to sort of produce images in their mind, right? Someone intentionally. Obviously, we all have this capacity because we're experiencing images and those experiences sort of aren't the world around us. They're right, a, a kind of thing that we've created out of sense data that's happening in our own head. And also, you know, if you consider something like a dream, well, that isn't even out there. So you're experiencing images and so on and so forth What's producing them? You are. Some part of you is, right? Your unconscious mind is producing this stuff. So we all have that capacity at some level. Um, when we talk about visualization, really what we're talking about a lot of the time is trying to intentionally shape the sort of imagery that we would normally experience in something like a daydream into something that's more structured, um, often as a way of communicating with parts of ourselves that think in images. And there are deep parts of ourselves, right, in terms of brain structures and sort of the unconscious that are not especially linguistically oriented. They don't have the same kind of language orientation, right? Not every piece of us is going to be equally skilled in that kind of thing. But images are something that tends to go very deep. Many parts of our sort of ancestral and evolved system are going to be able to process an image very differently than a bit of language, which can be quite abstract. So we see visualization traditions crop up across you know, virtually every religious tradition. And in some cases, right, it really reaches the um, sort of the developmental heights. It's, it's closely integrated with systems of meditation and contemplation. So although we've sort of lost track of that within the Christian tradition in the West, there's a very rich tradition actually of meditative visualization and contemplation in the Christian traditions and using those things. Likewise, you can consider something like um, Vajrayana, right? Tibetan Buddhism, 
which in, in its sort of tantric orientation is using visualizations very specifically to try to achieve certain kinds of complex altered states. And then above and beyond that, right, there is the, the sort of wealth of public um, approach to this. So again, right, sports psychology has looked at sort of visualization as a means of um, you know, uh, progressing things and right, developing your skills and so on and so forth. This has been very well known for a long time. Um, but it doesn't tend to get especially well integrated into culture at large, mostly because visualization tends to get rolled in together with uh, a kind of like manifestation style current, which is if you can imagine something really clearly, then you can supernaturally produce it in the world. And although you know, we don't ultimately know the true metaphysics of the world, we have no idea what that connection might be, maybe that's a thing, it seems that more often it's useful if visualization is used within a framework to try to cement certain kinds of um, experiences and practice, but also to be able to change ourselves in important ways. So it comes up in therapy all the time, right? If you have unfinished business with somebody, let's say you have unresolved material with a parent. I, I gotta stop. Oh, yeah. I, I'd love to keep going, but I Oh, but we've hit the line. Okay, back. okay, damn. Um, yeah. Do you, th so visualize, you mentioned it. Visualization is used in meditation a lot as, you know, mm -hmm. we dream about the beach, we dream about being, you know, hitting that ball in sports. Mm -hmm. Do you think visualization can be used to help people neurologically, physiologically, spiritually move through traumatic events, pre-event? Pre-event. Um, so I can imagine, hmm. Using visualization techniques can help people um, resolve a lot of their inner contradictions and inner conflicts. So visualization is one of the ways that psychotherapeutically, particularly, you can get people in contact with parts of themselves that are not, you know, sort of on the same page, right? Not operating according to the agenda. Anytime you're doing that kind of thing, where you're increasing the lines of communication, you're getting these various parts of yourself on the same page, you are essentially speaking, increasing your resilience because you're giving yourself more resources and different resources. You're gonna have uh, a sort of harmonious community of action in a sense within the different functions and parts of your brain. That is going to make you more resilient. It's gonna give you more resources to process, more resources to provide meaning. In general, it's just going to allow you to handle things right with a greater degree of resiliency and that includes traumatic experience. You know, after a traumatic experience comes in, visualization can also be quite important because we've seen, for example, with some of the pioneering work around using MDMA in cases of post-traumatic stress disorder, where removing the emotional component, right, removing the terror, in a sense, from the circumstance allows people to play through in visualization, something that is either a memory or, right, memory is not a stable construct, your memory can I'm shift. Stop. I, I would oh, love yeah. to keep going. I, I ah, mean, okay. I know Luke is chomping at the bit. Sure? No. Yeah, yeah, no, get in there, Luke. I, 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 we want your point of view. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's okay. Just yeah, a lot of these things we could go on and on about. It was that same feeling with John for sure. Right, right. Like, I wish we had all day with you. Um, this is a problem. You guys are, are uh, you need to find chunks. He and I are used to talking for three hours at a stretch. No, we love it. Um, and this one, I will, I've got a little exercise I'll throw uh, in right away. Yeah. But um, I challenge you, if again, you feel compelled to take an answer longer and longer, uh, please do. 
Um, but I chal I'll challenge you just to keep for short answers yep. kind of like a speed round. Um, first, I'm just going to almost like a Rorschach test. I'll just uh, the first thing that comes to mind. I'm gonna just gonna speak a phrase, and if it's as little as one or two words that come to mind, mm -hmm. or as long as one sentence, sure. Um, take your time if you need a moment. But how to spark trauma, or how to spark growth from trauma? Reflection. How to find light in dark places? Honest confrontation and acceptance. How to transform fear into love? Ambiguity, openness, vulnerability. Conflict into unity. Well, same thing, that's fear into love. So um, yeah, it's about learning how to tolerate ambiguity, learning how to open yourself to possibility uh, and learning how to make yourself vulnerable because without vulnerability, there can't be trust. Apathy into awe. That's really about expanding your capacities, changing apathy into awe really often is about just encountering things. Awe can strike us, but we have to put ourselves into places sometimes that it's easier to see. It's easier to access awe at the side of the Grand Canyon than it is in a dingy cubicle. Do you think human beings have the right or should have the human right to alter their states of consciousness? Unquestionably. Can um, you include that question in the answer? Certainly. Uh, humans unquestionably have the right to alter their own states of consciousness. The idea that states of consciousness can be legally controlled or mandated is, is an appalling intrusion into our sort of fundamental privacy and dignity. We have laws on the books already that cover what we do in the world. So if you are not doing things in the world, it's not clear why anybody has any business over policing your thought. Why do you think they do police that or try and control altered states of consciousness? Fear. They try to control altered states of consciousness out of fear, and the fear is twofold. One is altered states of consciousness often go together with things that do carry danger. Everything powerful is also dangerous, and these things are powerful. So there is a fear of them, both in a kind of paternalistic, protective way. They want to keep people from destroying themselves, but in so doing, they keep them from leaving the nursery. But there's another side to it. And the other side to it is expanding your states in this way and seeing new ways of being and new ways of connecting and new opportunities is threatening to all of the existing systems that are already there. You know, capitalism can't handle all of us learning how to meet our own emotional needs in any deep way because they cannot continue to sell us things if we feel okay. So there's no incentive to do that. There's only an incentive by that system to continue to fan the flames of our insecurity, to continue to fan the flames of our anxiety, right? There's no incentive. And, that, and that's a systemic problem. I'm not sure that's any one person, but this is the cage that we built ourselves. And so the system shuts it down because it is a direct threat. They don't want us to walk out because they think everything's gonna fall apart, but it won't be the end of the world. It'll be the beginning of the world. That's a lovely way to put it. Again, I apologize. These are questions that are I understand they, they need, they deserve a lot, a lot more yeah. um, explanation. But in a gist, um, what benefits do you think uh, altered states of consciousness and or psychedelics 
uh, might have that modern pharmaceuticals or medications do not? Well, one of the benefits that psychedelics offer over sort of the standard modern pharmacopoeia is that it's something of an open secret in psychology that we don't really have anything like an antibiotic, right? You get an infection, you take an antibiotic, the problem clears up the end. Instead, what we have are things that are designed to be taken in some ongoing sense, right? As though you had broken a limb, and so they're just like, keep taking painkillers, right? Rather than intervening on the problem. So one of the advantages is that psychedelics seem to intervene and they seem to largely resolve problems, right? Or they can. Uh, the other thing is that they're fast, right? It's not taking an SSRI and waiting a month. It's taking something and in a context, possibly having a breakthrough in eight hours. And certainly my own experiences, both in research professionally and personally, with psychedelics have been that sometimes you're doing 20 years worth of work in 20 hours. They can't match that otherwise. So, um, you know, that's a radical intervention, but you only have to look at, you know, Goldman Sachs just published a report on their medical investments that asked the question, is curing diseases a good profit model? <sighs> right? <laughs> so. What do you think the dangers are, risks are, if any, uh, in your own words and, and experience in your work? with engaging with um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy? I think that if psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is done irresponsibly, there are substantial dangers, although some of those are overstated. I mean, some of them are dangers like having a bad trip. And as, as is the case with many other aspects of our culture, we assume that because something is unpleasant, it's bad. The indications seem to be that having a bad trip can be just as transformative as having a good one. And many people have had an experience on a psychedelic where they've been confronted with something that they've been avoiding about themselves or about the world, and yeah, it hurts, it's unpleasant. And then they accept it, and then they grow. So having a bad trip in and of itself is not I think, a problem, but there are dangers associated with it. Anytime you begin to intervene on the machinery of your own mind, that carries risks. Powerful things are dangerous things but powerful things are also necessary to get things done. We're always taking risks of that kind. There is, of course, also the possibility of abuse, which is to say that if people are unscrupulous, they can use these sorts of things to have effects, and so there has to be a kind of ethical framework and set of checks and balances in place to keep people from using these kinds of techniques, from sort of turning white magic into black magic, right? As they so often can. Right? We can take techniques that could be used to make people grow and instead use them for control. Uh, and that's something that we've seen historically many, many times. So there are certainly risks, but there are risks that can be managed if we have a reflective ethical stance and if we have a community in place so that there are standards. Uh, this is a funny piece of, um, I think, psychedelic slang uh, that survived through the ages. I'm not sure if you're, you've heard it or aware of it, but um, uh, if you, you Sometimes people return and maybe when you mentioned abuse, the uh, mm. potential for abuse that mm -hmm. came up, um, you get, you, you have a feeling you got the call, you got to hang out the phone, right? something along those lines. What is that sensation that someone is like, oh, I, I've been here, I don't, I don't feel like I'm growing from this? Sure. You know, there's a kind of diminishing returns that can set in with something like a psychedelic, right? So the first time you do it, it's awe-inspiring and whatever. Like it breaks away from any kind of experience you have. And maybe the second time and the fifth time and the sixth time and the tenth. But after a while, it becomes quite familiar to you. We can acclimatize to almost anything, right? So, you know, while it might have been a radical state, if you're engaging in it every day, it's no longer a radical state. 
And you can tell the people acclimatize because if you know anybody who you know, smokes pot every day, right? They take on a degree of functionality that no first time pot smoker has, right? First time pot smokers can't hold it together. People who smoke pot chronically are just like, yeah, it's just, it's, I'm just doing my thing, right? We can adjust to a lot. So the idea is that we tend to conflate together the drug and the sort of the benefit. And so we keep taking the drug in order to achieve this altered state as though going to that particular place is the answer and not just a general expansion of our capacities. So getting the call is like, oh, this is a thing my mind can do. This is a state my brain can enter. Okay, good check. There are different ways to be. And maybe you have to take the call a few times because we tend to be a bit thick, frankly. But thereafter, it's like you don't just keep taking it all the time, right? That isn't the way to handle it. The way to handle it is to try to integrate, incorporate, digest, right? And grow from that. Do you see a lot of value or a future in microdosing? I think that there's a bit of a, a polarized community. I've heard some ex experts really criticize or become skeptical of its use. Yeah. Microdosing is an interesting kind of open question right now. I mean, some of the criticisms that have been leveled against it, um, not, not least that, you know, we look at uh, Timothy Leary in the 1960s and it was turn on, tune in, drop out. And there was a kind of a radicalism that was associated with it. Uh, and now, of course, one reads an endless number of stories about, um, you know, tech, tech workers in Silicon Valley um, microdosing to improve their productivity, uh, you know, in the, in the system. So that jars some people. Um, I don't think that we have enough evidence yet to determine whether microdosing as sort of an ongoing way of nudging our states of being uh, does what we want it to do. There seems to be plenty of anecdotal evidence to that effect, right? And that evidence is beginning to be gathered. I know actually some of the people that do that work, where they're, they're actually gathering data about how effective it is. It's hard to say yet. But I think that even if microdosing does turn out to be useful, it isn't going to remove the need for more powerful and intense experiences. It's, it isn't going to, you know, there are some things that can't be nudged. Do you believe psychedelic substances can be safely and legitimately integrated into our society uh, in our daily lives? Um, and do you think it will be? Yes, I do think psychedelics can be safely integrated into our society and our daily lives because other societies have safely integrated them. These are not new. We didn't invent them yesterday. They've been around for a long time. Um, there are some questions about how to do that, certainly, right? And we're out of practice uh, here in the modern you know, West. But of course, they can be safely incorporated. It's just going to require some thought about what happens. And to a great extent, they already have been safely incorporated. For all of the moral panic that surrounds psychedelics, you know, look at the actual statistics around people's safety and alcohol is a vastly bigger problem than psychedelics. Opiates are a vastly bigger problem than psychedelics. You know, psychedelics don't cause that much trouble at the end of the day, right? People have been safely taking them for decades. Will they be safely incorporated? I certainly hope so. Um, I have been surprised pleasantly by the, this sort of psychedelic renaissance that has come about. Because when I was interested in these things early on, they were still totally off the table. They were academically not respectable. You didn't look at them. I wanted to talk about these things. And yet I was told, eh. and that has very much changed. Now the publications are coming out so fast you can barely keep track, which tells me that there was a huge need underneath. 
And it seems that we're handling them more responsibly this time, and that they are really connecting up with what I think is a fundamental set of human needs. So yeah, it seems like it, seems like it is going that way. It's still a bit jarring for me. I'm not used to being on the winning side of a cultural argument. <laughs> it's exciting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to talk about rites of passage uh, for a moment. Mm -hmm. uh, you used a different word earlier on, I think. I'm trying to remember when you were talking about the lack of it in our Western Initiation. Initiation, right? Yeah. Um, so if we could use, would you use those words somewhat interchangeably, or we could stick with initiation if you'd like? Uh, we, can, we can use either. Rites of passage is fine. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you think it's, is its significance in the modern world, mm. uh, if it's any different uh, than the ancient or historical world. But quickly, I just wanted to mention a parallel. I'm not sure if you through discussions with Jeff and Jess, uh, they mentioned um, the special forces experience, the process that's a part of this documentary. As well. A little bit, yeah. So kind of a modern rite of passage. That's my own perspective of it since I witnessed it a few years ago and ongoing our work with it. Mm -hmm is I couldn't help but see a parallel in a very organic way between my psychedelic experiences mm -hmm. and this experience and how even though you're not um, ingesting a substance, they're going through very much an altered state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, what I want to know, you know, what you think is the significance of that uh, experience, um, whatever that initiation looks like, and in your uh, prerogative, what's happening here and here? Right. So our culture has, to a great extent, systematically stripped out our kind of rites of passage, our initiation rites. It used to be the case that we had those things religiously, and for the, to a great extent, we don't anymore. And a lot of that is about wanting to avoid discomfort. When you look at other civilizations right, and other cultures alive today, you'll see that there are these sort of ritual frameworks, often in a quite dramatic and trying fashion, where people are um, inducted into stages of their life, right? And sort of given an opportunity for self-transformation. The idea is that it's there. What is an initiation? What is um, one of these rites of passage? It's a system that is designed to help you grow up. And we've stripped that out of our culture. We don't have much of it left. You know, there's like getting drunk for the first time. There's losing your virginity. There's getting your driver's license. There's throwing the hat at graduation. But otherwise, it's all pretty dim and nebulous. The line with adulthood is sketchy for us, right? However, these rites of passage and initiations, right, are important because they take us at these critical moments and really allow us to some extent to break down so that we can build ourselves into a new person, so that we can meet the needs and stuff of the part of life that we're moving into. They're there to facilitate our own maturation. They're there to help us grow and grow up. And you do see those systems in, in some ways sort of hanging around in certain places. There are places that do have rites of passage, that you do run the gauntlet. So the military is a very good example of this. The military maintains these systems that you know, use adversity and use hardship to create these altered states so that you can transform yourself in a certain way, and they have a long tradition of that. And there are some in religious traditions, but for the wider public, it's not there. And so psychedelics, I think, are being hungered after by these people because people are hungering after modes of self-transformation that their culture isn't offering them. Do you, would you regard something like an ayahuasca ceremony as a rite of passage or something similar, an initiation? Mm -hmm. um, 
I think, a, I think an ayahuasca ceremony can be a rite of passage. I think it, it can be a really powerful experience for people. It can, on the other hand, also just be a toy. It can be a tourist experience. It can be a neat thing. Some people experience massive transformation from it, and for some people it's something to check off their bucket list, like bungee jumping, right? So that difference in orientation is significant. And don't get me wrong, with altered states and psychedelics and ritual in general, very often um, you think it's a toy uh, until it does exactly what it says on the tin. So people are sometimes quite surprised. You know, you go in thinking you're having a laugh until you're suddenly confronted by the jaguar gods or what have you. Um, so I think those things can be really significant and I think it's obvious why people are hungering after it and why there's been this, such a flood of sort of ayahuasca tourism. Um, and I think that biochemically it's a very interesting substance. The way that it uh, interacts with our brain and our consciousness is um, unique, although there are other things in that family, like a boga, um, that I think are equally uh, interesting and useful, but receive considerably less attention. Um, but yeah, I think that can be a passage because it does put you into a very difficult place. It does put you into confrontation with material you may not want to be in confrontation with. Uh, and it does shift people's perspectives pretty radically uh, by times. And if that isn't a rite of passage, what is? Luke, sorry, just let you know it's uh, 16 after. Okay, perfect. Video In a um, zeitgeist kind of way, how would you characterize our current day and age? There <laughs> are, uh, you know, predominant characteristics. In in the sense of the zeitgeist, I tend to think of our current era as being an era of anxiety and foolishness. We, we have so much knowledge and so little wisdom. We somehow have decided that we've risen above the irrational, right? And that it was even something to rise above, to master. When in fact, it's the case that the irrational can be this enormous sort of reservoir of meaning and purpose and stuff that we've turned our back on. We concern ourselves with pointless bullshit. And to some extent, we've been manipulated into doing that. There are vested interests and systems and so on and so forth that drive people towards that. But people move through the world with a deep state of anxiety, feeling hollow, right? And they want to fill that. They want to address it somehow. And so they buy shit. And, and they're encouraged to do so. So that the disconnection we have from each other social atomization in the name of community we see in things like social media right it's supposed to connect us together it doesn't it silos us and atomizes us um, we see it in the profound disconnection from nature it's shocking how many people don't know which direction the moon waxes in right it's the moon it's you know people's encounter with the natural world is remarkably poor right like they don't feel that sense of connection and so it is an age of fracture, it's an age of anxiety, it's an age where we're deeply disconnected. But in a way, that also of course provides a note of hope because things falling apart is how things build back up. Um, and so I think we're on the cusp of some very serious confrontations with ourselves and with our nature and with the way that we've moved in the world. But that's what has to happen before we grow up and my last question for you is, if anything, you can say nothing, what is the change you would most like to see in the world? 
The change I would most like to see in the world um, is that I would, I would like to see the world be, I guess, more psychologically minded, but that sounds very abstract. I, I would like to see the experience of the mind and the depths of the mind taken seriously and respectfully. We carry with us an enormous reservoir of wisdom and growth and creative energy, but we are encouraged to turn our backs on that aspect of ourselves because it doesn't fit easily within a set of pre-constructed narratives. Those narratives aren't working for us. It's not working. It's very obviously not working for people. And the answer, it turns out, is something that we have with us, but we don't listen to, we're afraid of. So I would like to see a cultural shift where we turn inwards, and not just inwards, but turning inwards as a means of then being able to authentically connect outwards, because right now we do neither. Well said. Thank you very much, Anthony. Thank you. I'm going to uh, grab a quick video portrait of you that's kind of like oh, yeah, sure. a photo portrait before we go. Then this would all look uh, wow. yes, amazing. I can tell you never thought about that before. <laughs>